Hello, everybody, and welcome to another Ask Me Anything segment. This is for January 2021, kicking off the year in style. Uh, I asked you guys some, um, well, I asked you to ask your questions in a video last week, and you guys sent me a ton of stuff on YouTube and Twitter. So I will try to get through as much of these as I can before I lose my voice. I w originally was going to have the phone lines open, but I figured that might kind of get in the way because if you guys called in and had more questions, I don't think I'd ever get through any of these. I mean, I had way over 100 total questions combined. So um, like I said, I'll try to get through as much of these as possible. Uh, I want to remind you guys that some of these are political in nature, some of these questions. So I ask you to, you know, let's keep it civil. And remember, if you disagree with me, that doesn't mean we have to hate each other, right? You might um, not agree with one of my answers to one of your questions. It may provoke uh, another question. And you ask that, and I may answer. And then maybe I have a question for you that you answer. And we do this thing called conversation, discussion. Remember that? Yeah, it's kind of a lost art right now in our society. People just like to yell and scream. So I ask very, very humbly that uh, we keep it civil here. And remember, we could disagree on something. That doesn't mean we have to hate each other. Okay. Also, uh, Super Chat Pledge from Unrivaled Boxing Talk, my man Mark. Salute, my man. I appreciate it. I just saw you get your question in uh, as I was starting this. I saw you got your question in asking about great boxing minds. Man, um, you know, just because I just got that question off the top of my head, the first name that comes to mind is Stephen Breadman Edwards, who um, John Uden, another question I have here, he brought up. Uh, Breadman. Breadman is one of my favorite current boxing minds. I, I love reading his stuff. He does a regular column, <clears throat> just answering like fan mail and stuff. And he um, is just a great guy to sit and talk boxing with. I love his tweets. He'll come out with tweets that kind of almost read like a book sometimes, but I don't agree with every last thing he says. Which, who are you going to agree with 100%? But I agree with over 90% of what that man says. He is a great, great boxing mind. So uh, to answer your question, that's the first one that jumps in my mind. If any other names come up in my mind, I'll definitely let you know through this conversation. But I, I'll say this. I've met some great boxing minds in this business, but I've also met some great business minds, some great uh, PR minds, some great science minds when it comes to uh, dope testing and things like that. So... I haven't just met boxing minds in this business. I've met people kind of all over the spectrum that uh, have great minds in different, different avenues. But let's jump into these questions, man. Let's start with John Uden, who asked, uh, Breadman Edwards recently tweeted about top young fighters cutting down to two fights a year too soon in their careers, possibly hurting their development. What's your opinion on that statement? And who out of the current crop of young stars do you think it could hurt the most? So I completely agree with Breadman. This is something I've talked about a lot. And I think that it affects American fighters more than anybody else. I think, and there's a couple different reasons, right? But just to give you guys a little bit of perspective, how different American fighters were not that long ago. You go back 30, 40 years. Man, Mike Tyson was 20 years old when he fought Trevor Burbick in 1986. He was 27-0 before he fought Burbick. Now, he fought nothing but cans, but he developed... He had fought a couple of decent guys that did take him some rounds. Blows out Burbick, right? Gets that first title. Now, think of how many fighters in this era, when they win that first title, what do they do? 
oh, man, I'm a pay-per-view fighter now, or I only fight twice a year, you know, and if I'm going to make uh, seven figures from here on out because I got a title in this era where there's five billion titles. Tyson gets his first title in 86. The following year, he fought four times. The year after that, 1988, three times, culminating in the Spinks bout, and that's really where he started to become seen as the man, right? He had, he unified all the titles. He'd go on to win the lineal championship and be the undisputed heavyweight champion of the world. He didn't win that title and then sit on his ass and fight once or twice a year after that. You see that too often. Uh, let's talk about Sugar Ray Leonard, man. He was 23 when he fought Wilfred Benitez in 1979. He was 25-0 and 0 at that time. So, again, he didn't fight the best opposition coming up. But, of course, we all know what he did in the amateurs coming up. <clears throat> he, he was, you know, a decorated amateur, Olympics, all that good stuff. Fights Benitez in 79, grabs that first title, <clears throat> then fights three times in 80, three times in 81. Two of those fights were against Duran, one of the best ever. And then it culminated in the Hearns bout, again, one of the best ever. So those fighters back then were just different. A lot of these American stars now, two fights a year, and it's one thing if you're 35 and you've been doing this for most of your life, you had over 200 amateur fights, like some of these Eastern European guys who are coming over here. Uh, But when you're 23, 24, 25, and now you're fighting twice a year at that point, that's killing your growth, not just as a boxer, but as a, as your branding. You know, you're in boxing. Casual fans don't give a shit if it's WBC, WBA. They don't even care what damn division it is. They don't care who the promoter is. They care who the fighter is. The fighter, the athlete, is the brand in boxing. And man, look at the Charlos, right? Take take those guys. Now they're going to be pay per view fighters going forward. Their pay-per-view together did 100, maybe 200,000 pay-per-view buys. But those are fighters that rely on reflexes and sharpness to get by. Man, he, Charlo shouldn't have struggled with Korobov, whether you think he won that fight or not. The other Charlo shouldn't have struggled with Harrison, whether you thought he won that fight or not. Those should have been decisive victories for the Charlo brothers, right? But because they had been so inactive, if you're fighting twice a year and one of the guys you're fighting is a stiff, so you're only fighting one legitimate challenge every 12 to 18 months, man, you could be, you could be off one night and you could struggle with a guy that on paper you're supposed to blow out. That was the Korobov fight. That was the Harrison fight, right? And there's plenty of other examples I could bring up. Okay, James asks, choose one lead singer, one lead guitarist, one bassist, one drummer to make the ultimate rock band. I thought about about this one. So if we're just staying with rock, now because you could ask funk, R&B, you know what I'm saying? There's, there's a lot of different genres we could have went with here. Jazz, but if we're just going rock, I don't know if I can name one, but here's a few. Uh, lead singers, Robert Plant, Chris Cornell, who could hit every freaking note, David Bowie, one of my favorites. Lead guitarist, uh, Jimi Hendrix, Eric Clapton, Eddie Van Halen, Stevie Ray Vaughan. Uh, one bassist, I would Jack Bruce and Dave Entwistle, but Flea is probably the best bassist ever. And Flea could do rock, he could do funk, he could do R&B, he could do everything. And then one drummer, uh, Dave Grohl, great drummer, but a criminally underrated drummer, Phil Collins. Phil Collins straight up uh, would kind of ghost drum on a lot of different songs. There's a lot of songs that you guys would know that you'd have no idea. Phil Collins played the drums on it. That dude could do a little bit of everything. Crazy, crazy talented. All right, Anthony Harvey asks, would you ever use beefsteak tomatoes to make it a sugo? You know, I haven't, 
I have it, but I would try it because I've heard that they're more plump and they're supposed to have less seeds. So you get more meat in the tomato. Now, I, I like the San Marzano tomatoes, but um, I've heard the beefsteak are cheaper, bigger, uh, less um, seeds, so there's less acidity, and you get more for your buck. So I would definitely try them, man. Maybe we'll have to do that. Uh, Gerardo at Brew asks, who do you think won between Hagler and Leonard? Oh, shit. That is one that's still debated. Now, my answer may upset some people, but you're going to see this as a cop-out. But that really was one of those fights that was damn close. It could have went either way depending on what you prefer. So I think there are a lot of parallels to the Hagler-Leonard fight, to the uh, Canelo-Triple G fight. Jose Juan Guerra scored that fight 118 to 110 for Leonard, the house fighter. That is an equally, not equally abysmal, but nearly as shitty a scorecard as Adelaide Bird had for Canelo in his fight, first fight with Triple G. Not surprisingly, uh, Jose Juan Guerra, who is out of Mexico, he went on to work in boxing until 2016, despite that terrible scorecard. And I don't think that was uh, an isolated incident. I think he had several. He worked in the sport, scoring fights until 2016. So these systemic issues in the sport right now, like I beat up on Adelaide Bird and others, they've been around for decades, guys. Anyway, Dave Moretti scored at 115-113 for Leonard. I think you can make an argument for that. Lou Filippo scored at 115-113 for Hagler. I think you can make an argument for that. I got to I got to say Dave Moretti was scoring that fight how long ago was that? That was over 30 years ago. 35 something years ago and he's still scoring fights. Another issue in the sport of boxing. Uh anyway, the media was split. I mean right down the middle on that fight. Uh apparently according to CompuBox Leonard landed more and at the higher percentage. One thing I find interesting, people said that Leonard waited out Hagler and Hagler was old, this, that, the other. Man, Hagler was 30. Sorry, guys, my voice. I ran outside today. I ran a few miles in the cold, but it's like 30 degrees out here. So breathing in that cold air, it kind of messes up your throat. But Hagler was 32 when he fought Leonard and Leonard was 30. So I get it that Hagler was maybe past his absolute peak, but it's not like the guy was 40 years old. He wasn't even in his mid-30s. He was 32, about to turn 33. Leonard was 30, about to turn 31 when they fought. Contrast that to Triple G being 35 and Canelo being 27 when they fought, and then in the rematch, 36 and 28. So, again, just a little perspective for some of you guys because a lot of historians will say, oh, Sugar Ray Leonard, he, he waited out marvelous Marvin Hagler. Well, if he waited out Hagler, what the hell did Triple G, or I'm sorry, Canelo and Golden Boy do with Triple G? And then there's a bunch of other scenarios I could bring up too, and other, uh, other examples. But man, that is one dude I go back and forth on. Really could go either way. Was it the cleaner, harder punches from Hagler or the activity uh, and the defense and the footwork from Len- Leonard? Which one do you prefer? Also consider that Leonard was the much smaller man naturally had started at a lower weight classes and moved up. Hagler was seen as the bigger guy, the bully. So I think it worked on the judge's mind seeing this so-called quote-unquote smaller guy have success with a bigger guy and a harder puncher. Bucks, Alan, Alan, 
Annalise, Bucks Annalise asks, where is Chepo Reneso health issues? I'm not sure what Chepo is. I'm, I'm not sure. I haven't heard from him. Uh, I think he's just kind of bowing out and let Eddie run things. But he also asked, um, you know, who, are, who is the big challenge for Canelo 168? How will fights play out between Plant, Benavidez, Saunders, Charlo, Andrade? Uh, I think Canelo would be favored to beat all of them. I would favor Canelo right now to be Plant, Benavidez, Saunders, Charlo, and absolutely beat Andrade. That's just the way I see it. I think right now he is in his absolute groove. There are very, very few fighters that can fight on even terms with Canelo right now, um, or even highly competitive terms where they're winning four or five rounds. Very, very few. Gyro asks, do I think Trump should be impeached? Trigger warning. Uh, No, I don't. He has a week left in office. Some of you need to chill the fuck out. The guy's got a week in office. Relax. Also, uh, he asks, do you think Billy Joe Saunders actually fights Andre before a May fight with Canelo? No. I just I don't believe those two are going to fight <clears throat> anytime soon. I'd love to be proven wrong. I don't think it happens. A asks, who's rated higher on the all-time great list, Pacquiao or Mayweather and why? This is a great question. I can't really give you an answer yet because Pacquiao's still fighting, okay? If Mayweather continues to fight on for the next three, four years in these whack exhibition fights against non-boxers, and Pacquiao fights on for another year or two against actually ranked professional fighters, he's going to lose some. But even if he's – guys, if he's competitive this year with Errol Spence or if somehow he fights Terrence Crawford and those fights are even competitive, if he loses but he still wins three or four rounds in those fights, that's more significant than anything Mayweather's done in the last five or six years. So – the the answer to this question is going to change in the next year or so, depending on what happens with Pacquiao and Floyd. As it stands right now, you can make an argument Mayweather rates higher because he was undefeated. He never lost. He was never in serious trouble in any fight. He'd been buzzed a couple times, whatever. But there are huge holes in his resume. You can make an argument that Pacquiao should rate higher because he started lower and achieved higher heights at his absolute peak than Mayweather did. Mayweather, as a, an amateur, was a phenom. And he was seen as um, a guy that was going to win titles in the sport, right? So when he went pro, he was the, the golden path was laid out for him. Pacquiao had to earn it the old school way, and he had rivalries you know, with, with the great featherweights of that era. And then goes up to lightweight, goes up to welterweight. And yes, some of those situations were very controlled. The, the, the win against Margarito looked really, really great, but that shouldn't have been for a world title, in my opinion, at least not at 154. So I don't rate Pacquiao as a champion at junior middleweight. I think that was, that was bullshit. But uh, all fighters, all superstar fighters have those nuances, that, those asterisks, but you could absolutely make an argument that Manny Pacquiao, in terms of all-time great, when you whack everything up, all the different factors and intangibles that he rates higher. You can absolutely make that argument. And depending on what happens over the next 12 to 24 months, that position could be even more solidified. So we got to see. The boxing poll asks, welterweight Ricky Hatton versus Ike Corte, who wins and how? That's a good question. I'll just say this, man. Ike was a bigger guy and he was never stopped. So if this fight's in England, 
I could see Ricky getting a decision because the crowd would be behind him. Uh, that could influence the judges. But if that fight's in America, I'm going to take Corte, maybe by decision. I know that answer won't be popular, but we're not talking 140. We're talking 147. Ike's a bigger, stronger guy, fought really great opposition, and he was never stopped. So I can't see Ricky stopping him. So over a 12-round fight, I think Ike would have enough moments to maybe pull out a decision or perhaps he loses in controversial fashion to Hatton and people are split. But that's the way I would see that fight playing out. Uh, Costas713 asks, have you heard anything from Jarrett Hurd? No, except that they, I guess they want to stay at 154. They were going to go to 160, but last, last I heard they're going to try to stay at 54. Uh, he asked, when is he returning to the ring and against who possibly? I've heard a couple names. It's gone back and forth. I honestly don't know. I just don't know. And then he asked about the 122-pound unified title holder right now, Akhmedailov. Uh, Akhmedailov is fighting in March. He's training with Joel Diaz right now in California, and he's supposed to defend his titles in March. So the specifics to all that should be announced soon, so long as COVID lockdowns and stuff don't get in the way but he is slated to fight in March. Brock Landers asks, what would it take for boxing fans, especially Americans, uh, obsession with a fighter's O to end? That's a good question. I think it has to start with the networks, the media, um, the promoters. The the problem is, you know, the the networks and the promoters, they're going to use the O to promote their fighters. The fighters are going to do it on their social media. So it's up to the media to step up and say, listen, the O don't mean shit. I don't care if a fighter lost. Right now, everybody's shitting on Vasily Lomachenko, right? And I didn't like his excuses after the loss to Tiafima Lopez either, but they're not at all comparable to Deontay Wilder. And the loss wasn't comparable either. It was a competitive loss. It's still, people are writing the guy off and saying he's finished. I'm like, dude, he just lost a fight. And the Lomachenko haters would say, well, he lost to Orlando Salido. Who gives a shit? It was his second pro fight. <laughs> His second pro fight. So who cares? Um, Stop overrating losses so much, you know, and it starts with guys like you, guys like me. We got to just get the word out there. It doesn't matter if somebody loses. And it's all about how you lose, too. And then hopefully the, the networks and the commentators. If I ever get brought on as a commentator, I promise you guys this much. Number one, I don't think I ever will. I think I'd be too much of a wild card for these people. And I've been told off the record by a few people um, in positions of power, hey, Mike, can't say this on the record, but um, people think you're a loose cannon and they don't want to bring you on board because they think you're going to say X, Y, Z. Well, I would. <laughs> I promise you guys right now, if I'm ever brought on as a commentator, I'm going to keep it real and I'm going to talk about things like that. I'm not going to overrate a guy that has you know, 15, 16 straight knockouts over tomato cans, over guys I would beat. I'm not going to overrate a guy that has an undefeated record. I'm not going to underrate a guy that has a few losses. I won't go there. I promise you guys. I make that pledge right now. All right, let's see. Our BE, our bed minister, our bed minister says or asks, uh, has any other fighter damaged his reputation after a loss worse than Deontay Wilder? I mean, with the ridiculous excuses and whatnot. No. No one that I can think of in modern boxing history. That's not me hating on Deontay Wilder. It's not me saying he's the only one who's ever made excuses. There's been plenty of stupid excuses made. I didn't like Lomachenko's word, his verbiage, his word choice in that Ukrainian interview in relation to uh, his loss to Tiafima Lopez. But 
No other fighter has damaged their reputation more than Wilder. It's been astonishing. Okay, all those questions were from Twitter. Now we're going to get to the YouTube question. Chris Bergen, who's on the chat, I see you on there. What's up, Chris? He asked, will the winner of AJ and Fury be considered for the pound-for-pound list? If not, what would it take for the winner to be considered? I think they will. I think at that point, the winner of that fight is the undisputed heavyweight champion of the world. I don't give a shit what the WBA and WBC have to say with all their five billion titles. The winner of that fight, especially, I have to say, especially if it's Tyson Fury, okay? If it's Tyson Fury, he'd have an even better case because he beat the last great heavyweight in Vladimir Klitschko. Ugly win, but he won. There's question marks because of the performance-enhancing drugs, but whatever. On paper, he won. And then he beats Deontay Wilder, and then he beats Anthony Joshua. At that point, he's pretty much cleaned out the heavyweight division, and I think that would absolutely put him in pound-for-pound consideration. Now, let's say AJ wins, and it's highly controversial, and most people think Fury won, right? Or it scored a draw or something, like the first fight between Fury and Wilder, which that draw was highly controversial. Maybe not. Maybe they don't get in. But ultimately, I think those two, if they fight, and I, God, I hope they do, they're going to fight two or three times. It's going to be very, very similar. The deal will be very, very similar to Fury and Wilder's deal, where you're going to have a rematch clause and all that stuff built in. Those guys are not just going to fight once. There's too much damn money to be made. Kevin Lee asks, uh, can you talk about the differences between Kovalev's and Golovkin's jab from a technical standpoint? Same question with Lennox Lewis and Larry Holmes. So, okay, let's start with that. Um, I I would say Golovkin's jab was, um, I don't know how to put this. I I don't want to say more fundamentally sound, but more traditional. He'd stand behind the jab, uh, come straight forward, and it was a ramrod. I think with Kovalev, he was a little more, dare I say, athletic with it and would use it more at mid-range. He would also do uh, something I see a lot of the Russians do, a follow-up jab after a right hand. So you could really cut the ring down very quickly if you go one, two, one, and you step with each one of those. He would also use the jab uh, as, as a way to pivot into a southpaw stance. So where he would kind of do that one, two, one, or he would jab and step with the right and then jab with the right hand and shoot a left-hand power punch. He was more fluid with it in that respect and could get it done from different angles on the inside at mid-range. Golovkin's was more just a power ramrod jab that he could control an entire fight with, almost like it was a power punch. And it's the same kind of thing between Lennox and Larry. I think Larry's jab um, may be a little more Kovalev-esque in the sense that it, it, it varied a little bit, the speed and trajectory and everything like that. And Lennox's was more like Golovkin's, I would say. I know some people out there would disagree with that. Not exactly. Okay, I'm not saying exactly. But those are the similarities I would see. He also asked, uh, if you were a pro fighter and could pick one of the following, which one would you pick? Hagler's chin and conditioning, Chavez Sr.'s left hook to the body, or Hearns' right hand? I would absolutely go with Hagler's chin and conditioning. Chin and conditioning will take you farther in this sport than anything else. A big right hand like Hearns or like Deontay Wilder's will take you only but so far. You're going to make money off it, but in the end, that chin's going to get checked or your conditioning is going to get checked. So, um, yeah, man, conditioning and chin go a long, long way. 
Okay, uh, Sebo Sanova asks, uh, he kind of asked about judging. He's got a very long question here. I'm not going to read the entire thing. But basically what he's asking is, why do judges have to score around 10-9? Some rounds are so dominant in the punch numbers and everything else. Why can't it be 10-7 or 10-6, 10-5? So without getting into a, <coughs> a big breakdown of the 10-point must system, <clears throat> the way the 10-point must system right now in boxing is set up is a round is 10-9. You could technically score at 10-10. If there's a knockdown, you could score at 10-8. If there's absolute domination in a round, you could score at 10-8. But one fighter must get 10 points. As far as um, scoring around, let's say, 10-5, one guy, one, let's say one guy lands 50 power punches, the other guy lands two. And you're like, man, that other guy doubled the work. I'm going to score this round 10-5. The way pro boxing is supposed to work is in a championship fight, there are 12 rounds, and each round is its own fight. So if you have one guy who won one round really, really big, but the other guy won the next four or five rounds very, very closely, who would you say is winning that fight? In the eyes of boxing, I guess, uh, executives and the powers that be that wrote these rules – it's the guy who's winning more rounds. So winning one round big isn't the same as winning the next five rounds small. A knockout could change everything, of course. But that's why they score rounds close. 10-9, 10-8 if there's a knockdown. So that one round doesn't um, – what's the word I'm looking for? Doesn't disproportionately affect the entire fight. You want to keep things close if the rounds are competitive. And if they're really, really, if one guy does dominate, you take a point away. But look, man, if you scored around 10-4 and there was no knockdowns, and then the other guy wins the next four or five rounds, that's an even fight on the scorecards. That's not right. That's not how this should work. That's why it's 10-9 or 10-8. October 4th asks, uh, hey, Mike, there are certain fighters who reach what I call the Achilles level. Is it Achilles or Achilles? I think it's Achilles. Where they just look unbeatable, prime Mike Tyson, prime Roy Jones, prime Muhammad Ali, and so on. Do you think Canelo has reached this level right now? I think so. I think um, now, not that I'm comparing Canelo to those fighters necessarily, that remains to be seen, but he has hit his stride. He has really hit his absolute peak as a fighter right now. And, you know, there was a question before about who troubles him at 168. I think there's competitive fights for him there, but I favor Canelo to beat everybody right now in that division. I just do. The only guys that I see where I would favor them to beat him going in are currently at 175 pounds. So uh, everybody at 168 to 168, I would favor Canelo to win. He's probably going to go the distance with most of those guys. I don't see him knocking everybody out and looking unstoppable in that perspective, but his reflexes, his defense – Everything's on point right now. And then uh, he also asked Terrence Crawford. I see him as the most gifted, instinctual fighter in boxing currently. Do you agree? Absolutely agree on Crawford. And I think what he means by instinctual, guys, is that Crawford doesn't have to watch hours and hours of, of video of his opponent. He could get in the ring, and he just needs a round or two. You know, people talk about Lomachenko downloading information. I think Crawford's even better at it. Honestly, I really, really do. And I've thought that all along. Uh, people talked about Mayweather downloading info. I think Crawford's better than Mayweather at it. I really do. He gets in there, he downloads some info, and he makes an adjustment, and you're done. That's just it. 
And I still think if he got in the ring with Errol Spence this year, he'd do the same damn thing to Errol Spence. Because I just don't know if Errol's got that extra level once Crawford makes that adjustment. Um, that's why that fight would be so thrilling to see, man. I hope it gets done in the next 12 months. If it doesn't, shame on them. Zach D. asks, how do sanctioning fees work? How much money are they? It depends on the group. It depends on the situation. <clears throat> so a purse bid uh, situation. There's a minimum bid. And let, let's say it depends on the division, the sanctioning group. But um, let's say it's an IBF bantamweight fight off the top of my head i can't remember the exact number okay but let's just say it's 150,000 it's somewhere around there minimum bid you have to at least bid that if you're a promoter and you want a chance at promoting that title fight you don't even have to promote those two fighters that are going to be fighting uh but you could just jump in so there's a situation where there's a minimum a bid right there And a percentage of that, of course, would go to the sanctioning fee. So every sanctioning organization is a little different, but they do post their rules. If you guys are interested, you can pull up most of their rules, man. I know the WBC posts them. You can look all this stuff up if you're bored one day. Um, You know, I've read all of them because I've had to at different times to understand what was going on in certain negotiations and stuff. But I don't remember all the details, all the minutia. So I can't give you a one set answer it really just depends on the group and the the situation Uh, lay 99 asks well he says again uh, so sorry to hear about your brother thank you for that uh then he asks could you tell us the cause of his passing could it have been prevented and what lessons you and your listeners might be able to learn from this tragedy so let's start with that um i'm not ready to break down the exact reason Actually, this Friday, we're having a memorial for my brother. Uh, Tiffany and I are going to hit the road tomorrow. We're going to drive north to be with my family and do that memorial. Um, We were going to do it last month, but COVID uh, screwed it up. Uh, Several family members and and family friends got COVID or or, were around people who had COVID, I should say. And because of that, we had to postpone. But I would like to do a video in the future, and I'll probably do a series of videos actually talking about uh, what exactly happened. By the way, we're still getting more information. It took us a long time to get details and everything from the police um, who really mishandled the entire case. And um, it's been difficult to get answers from the police and the medical authorities and the way they handled it was California. Oh, my God. I could rant for hours on California. But... um, I promise you guys at some point I I will talk because there are absolutely lessons to be learned from, from my perspective as a family member uh, dealing with my brother and certain things, situations. I'll just put it to you guys this way. My brother was in a situation where he was going to die from, from one of a few reasons. He was going to die from the street. He was going to die from law enforcement or he was going to die from himself because of certain uh, problems he had. So it was going to be one of those things. We did everything we could to try to help the situation. In the end, um, there's a lot. There's some things I did last year uh, to help him that I I didn't reveal publicly, but um, <laughs> I did. I'll just put it to you this way: I did absolutely everything I could. Um, I would, you know, I, I won't get into details here, but um, <clears throat> it, I will say hopping on a plane across the country. 
dragging people, kicking and screaming, doing what I had to do to get them out of that situation, uh, driving them across the country. There's a lot that I tried. And in the end, um, you know, it, it wasn't enough. So I'll talk about that at a later date when I'm, I'm ready. I'm not 100% ready yet, but I promise you guys I will. He also asked, and this is a political question, heads up, trigger warning. He asked, um, I've heard some folks are up in arms over the supposed white glove treatment of the MAGA dipshits in D.C. the other day. <laughs> Do you know what that's all about? Um, okay, so I'm not going to get into... Uh, I'm not going to go down this rabbit hole <laughs> too much, but I will say um, those you guys have been following the news. Um, the uh, th- there is a a protest on the Capitol, and a few hundred idiots stormed the Capitol building and smashed some windows and moved some furniture around and took some selfies. And uh, one woman was shot point blank in the head by a cop. One cop died due to his injuries. Several other police were injured. And it's been a mess and everybody's been talking about it and the media has been freaking out and everyone's acting like the world's going to hell. My question to those people is, where the hell were you in 2020? There were hundreds of protests in dozens of cities for months, most of last year. And most of the protesters, whether they were there to really do something positive or just there to get a selfie for their Instagram, um, they were peaceful. But there were thousands of violent actors in dozens of cities that caused over $2 billion, with a B, $2 billion in property damage and insurance claims in 2020 alone. I'm not even going to talk about the few years before that. 2020 alone, over $2 billion in damage. Millions of small businesses affected, thousands of people injured, um, assaulted. Um, thousands of people terrorized. I mean, you guys have seen the videos of, you know, a middle-aged couple sitting at a cafe eating and a bunch of people get in their face and with a blowhorn and tell them to denounce their privilege and shout in their face and all this. I just craziness, right? And there were fires, there were bombs, there were murders, dozens of murders last year, uh, including police, including people of all ethnicities and genders. And everyone was just cool with that, I guess, because everyone's trying to equate this one incident last week, which, by the way, I think those people were morons, too. But that one incident does not equate to the hundreds of incidents that took place just last year that cost innocent people their livelihoods, their businesses. I know people personally who lost their business due to those riots. Uh, So the double standard that I see in the media is troubling and the censorship I'm seeing, the Orwellian thought. You guys know I work in media. I work in entertainment. Over 90% of the people that I work with, my peers, have a sheep herd mentality. And the ones who actually do think logically and independently are bullied into submission or they're labeled bad words and this, that I've dealt with that. I deal with it all the time. You're just not allowed to have any independent thought uh, nuance, objectivity, those things have gone out the window. It's pretty crazy right now. It's pretty damn crazy. So my thing is, I, I will admit this, I've never been to a protest in my life. I've never been to a political rally in my life. I think politicians are full of shit. Democrats and Republicans, pretty much full of shit. 
every other political party, 99% of politicians out there are full of shit. These people don't give a damn about you or, you or I. They, they don't. They're all in cahoots together. They're all part of the elite. They're all taking care of each other behind closed doors. And how, how often have you seen a politician get into politics and they're a middle-class person and within a couple of cycles, they're a millionaire. Look at this AOC woman. If she wasn't in politics, she'd probably be struggling to pay her bills right now. Doesn't exactly strike me as a genius. She's going to be a millionaire soon if she isn't already because she's in politics. You see too much of that. And this goes on both sides, okay, equally. It's just that when you talk about the systems of media, academia, um, big tech, that's all run by one pretty much herd mentality. So when there's a challenge or um, a questioning of their morals, their thoughts, their ethics, or a different worldview or perspective that's brought up, to those folks, they see it as extreme. And so there's this back and forth, you know, and these two polar extremes fight with each other. Meanwhile, most people, most reasonable people get along. I pretty much get along with everybody. I'm cool with everybody. And all of my friends and family from different walks of life, um, we say the same thing. It's like, man, most people get along. I don't know what the hell is going on 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 the news because pretty much everybody I know is cool with everybody else. But the whack jobs are the ones on TV. Anyway, um, yeah, double standards, one of my biggest pet peeves in life. Okay, so this one person asked a question. Um, I, I can't read this name. I think it's in Russian. So I can't, I'm sorry, but I can't read it. He says, greetings from Germany. The name is not German. Uh, but he says, greetings from Germany. Who is your all-time favorite ref? Steve Smoger. He also asked, could you please comment on the Olympic doping scandal? Everybody is talking about the Russians. But come on, which country doesn't have a whole net of labs where doping research is funded by the government? Wow. Well, I could do an hour-long video on this. What made the Russian Olympic doping scandal different is that the government was knowingly working with labs to dope up athletes. Like, it wasn't happening behind the scenes or something. There was no buffers. The government was basically helping Russian athletes cheat. And this was discovered. And people that leaked the information were jailed. Some of the people that leaked the information were murdered by the Russian government. So do I think China's dirty as hell? Do I think that there's plenty of other countries that are dirty as hell? We've seen evidence of this. Yes, of course, we know this. The Olympics, guys, ban the Olympics. Stop watching it. The Olympics is the most corrupt sport. The IOC is the most corrupt sporting organization on earth. All the shit I just said about the American government and our Congress and our politicians, the IOC makes them look competent and and ethical, okay? So the Russian doping scandal was a little different, bro. They They were taking it an extra mile. Do I think other governments and institutions are cheating, especially in the Olympics? Of course. But the Russians took it a little too far that time. That was just inexcusable. He also asked, uh, why don't Russian boxers implement some moves from Olympic weightlifting in their workouts like Eastern Europeans do for explosiveness? I know several who do. I know several who do. So I do think they could use it more. But um, some of that stuff, if you do too much of it, can actually slow you down. There's a fine line. There's a fine line. 
And you said, uh, what's my opinion on YouTube boxers? Look, I, I hated the YouTube boxers when it started. I kind of don't care anymore. I've just embraced it that it's where we're going. It's as long as these guys, here's where I'll start to get pissed, okay? Is if the sanctioning organizations and the institutions in boxing that protect the sanctity of the sport, supposedly, start getting involved with the YouTube crew. If there's a WBC YouTube champion, I'm going to shit all over that. If the BWAA, which I'm a member of, has a YouTube Boxer of the Year award, I'm going to shit all over that. Okay? So short of those things, whatever, man. It's just part of the sport now. And he said, uh, just curious, what are your PRs in deadlift, squat, and bench press? Ooh. You know, I don't lift heavy anymore. I used to have about 10, 15 pounds more of muscle on me. Um, But at my best, right around 500 pounds for a deadlift. Squat, um, 400 pounds. I I never really tried more than four plates or eight plates, four plates on each side. And then um, bench press. You know, bench press was probably my shittiest lift, man. Probably only, <clears throat> only like 275. I never tried more. Yeah, because two plates, two and a half plates. I never tried more than 275. So uh, my best lift was was deadlift, and I got 500 pounds on that. Uh, Super chat pledge from my man Trent. He says, Alexander, whoa, that's a tough one. Uh, Shizniak and Pat McCormick are going to make a big impact when they turn pro. Is Taylor Ramirez happening this year for sure? Trent, I am 95. I'm going to go 99. You know what? All right, we'll scale that back. I'm going 97.5% confident that Taylor and Ramirez fight this year. I really, really do think they're going to fight this year. COVID might mess it up for the first half of the year, but they will fight this year. I promise you that much. Um, But, dude, we got some good-looking – amateurs that are coming out in the next couple of years that are going to uh boxing's in a good place we've got some great great young fighters coming up right now it's exciting and and it also includes some really great american prospects as well but you're going to get more and more of these eastern european guys of course you're going to continue to get great fighters for latin america you're going to get more asian fighters more central asian fighters uh, so uh, that's exciting, man. And of course, the UK is a thriving scene. So it's just a great time to be a fight fan. It really, truly is. Okay. Gav Bridges asks uh, another political question. All right. Trigger warning, everybody. Pull your panties up. It's going to be okay. He asks uh, looking at last week's Patriot, and he says Patriot in parentheses, violation of the Capitol building. Where would you rank it in the protest over the last few years, stretching back to not my president? Um, And then he says, what is your weight class to watch for 2021, 2022? Could you see Ryan Garcia struggling as he travels up the weights? So as far as this protest goes, I'll kind of go back to my answer before. In certain ways, this protest was terrible because these guys invaded a government building. But there was protests, I think, in 2018 where they were – People on the far left were protesting Brett Kavanaugh, um, his nomination, and they encroached on a, I don't know if it was the Capitol building. I'm not sure exactly, but I, I, I remember the reports of this. It wasn't in the mainstream media. You had to go to YouTube to see the videos, of course, and those videos were 
subsequently de- deleted most of them. But they stormed a Capitol building. This is hardly unprecedented. Guys, in the 1960s, the Black Panthers were strapped with machine guns and shit, and they stormed government buildings. Um, th- there have been government buildings breached outside of Washington, D.C., uh, in this country in recent years. So it's hardly unprecedented. The difference is who was doing it, when they did it, and the media's reaction to it. I don't condone any of it. I think these people were morons. Again, I've never gone to a protest in my life. And if some of you out there have, good good for you. Okay, I'm not saying that's necessarily a bad thing. I always looked at protesters and protests in general, and I'd be like, don't these people work? Because they're usually during the day. I'm at work. I'm hustling. I'm busting my ass because no one's going to give me a handout. I got to I gotta, you know, do my thing and um, make money. So I, I never went to a protest. So when I see people protesting on either side, I'm kind of like, dude, get a job. <laughs> get a job or something. So um, anyway, I don't rate it th- that highly compared to some of the other protests where, uh, you know, several people died. There was uh, – I'll get back to boxing. Let me just add one thing, guys. There was a protest, uh, quote-unquote – mostly peaceful protest in St. Louis last year. I lived in St. Louis for a year before I moved to LA. I know that city well. I love that city. And there was a a retired police officer that went to help out a friend's store that was being looted. He went to help out a friend. And this dude was gunned down right in the sidewalk and left there to bleed out. I saw the video because people posted it to social media. Nobody helped this, this gentleman. And he died bleeding out on the street. Retired police officer who had served his community for decades. And that's how he died. It was really, really sad. There should have been outrage over that. Hardly mentioned in mainstream media. That's the kind of stuff that annoys the shit out of me. You should be outraged at all of this. Just be balanced. That's it. Just be balanced. Okay, Carlos Cabrera says, Virgil Ortiz versus Jaron Ennis, who wins? I'll take Virgil. I think uh, Virgil catches Ennis. I think Ennis gets hit a bit uh, in wild spurts. Right now, Virgil Ortiz is more proven. He's the more proven guy. He's fought the better opposition. He looks a little more solid. Ennis looks spectacular, but he hasn't been tested at all. Ortiz hasn't been tested very much, but he's been tested slightly more than Ennis. So right now I'd edge Ortiz just on, I'd say, experience and the the level of opposition, what we've seen from him so far. He looks a little more solid on his feet, and he's punched through guys that are way better that, than anyone NS has fought quite yet. But I may change my opinion as those guys step up in opposition and we see them get tested a little bit. But I'm very high on both of those fighters. I think they're going to win titles in multiple weight classes. And I think Ortiz is going to eventually be a middleweight. I really do think. To go back to Gav Bridges, though, real quick, he asks, what's my weight class to watch in 2021 and 2022? 115 in 2021, 122, or I'm sorry, uh, 135 in 2022. Will Garcia struggle as he moves up in weights? Yes, but so will Gervonta Davis, so will Devin Haney, so will Tiafima Lopez, so will Virgil Ortiz and Jaron Ennis, so will all of them. Joel Hundley just has a joke, a bar joke. He says, what's the similarity between Elvis and Budweiser? Both are kings. Hooah! Doo-doo-tsh. Jack Alter asks, uh, how do I see Baturbia versus Joe Smith Jr. playing out? Am I the only one who feels Joe Smith has the style to win? You know, here's the thing with that fight. So uh, 
Joe Smith Jr. is going to fight for, I think, the WBO uh, vacant title against Maxim Vlasov soon. I think he's going to win that fight. Joe's career seems to be trending up a little bit right now, ticking up. He's more confident than ever. He's improved some things, but he still isn't hard to hit. And Baturbiev punches through dudes. The one thing that might affect that fight is Baturbiev has been injured. He's had uh, issues outside the ring that have left him so inactive that perhaps Joe can catch him on the right night and, and just, you know, catch him getting old overnight. Um, I, I'm, you know, I favor Baturbiev, okay? And by the way, Joe's next fight against Vlasov, that's not a given. I think that Vlasov is a very good um, uh, experienced fighter who's fought, like, for, I want to say from like 160 all the way up to cruiserweight. So he's going to give Joe a, a tough night's work. I just favor Joe to win that fight by decision. But when him and Viterbi fight, and that could be later this year, it really could be, um, that's going to be a fantastic matchup in terms of styles. But I favor Viterbiev. However, dude has been injured a lot. He's been very inactive. So if he gets in there on the wrong night and he's on 100% against Joe Smith, could have an upset special on our hands. We shall see. Another super chat pledge from my man Trent Nonpareil. He asked, well, thank you for the super chat, but he asked, um, Ryan Garcia says he wants Pacquiao next. Likely. Uh, how about Teo versus Bud for the pound for pound spot? Who wins? More likely than Spence. Yelusinov versus Ennis or Ortiz. Okay, let's start. Ryan Garcia versus Manny Pacquiao. Not happening. Not happening. Uh, Tiafima Lopez versus Bud Crawford. Not happening anytime soon. Tio needs to, uh, he'll have one more fight at 35 probably, and then he'll be up to 40 before he gets to Bud. Maybe 2022 that could happen if Errol Spence and PBC don't want to fight Crawford and they move to 54, which is very likely. Then maybe you could see that matchup down the line. If, if, if Tiafima Lopez fights the Taylor Ramirez winner at the end of this year or even early 2022, and then either in late 2022 or early 2023, Fights Bud Crawford. Holy shit, what a great resume that would be. And then, um, yeah, I actually think a Tio versus Bud fights, as long as Bud stays with top rank, that is more more likely down the road than him fighting Spence. I've pretty much given up on that fight. Yelusinov versus Ennis or Ortiz. That fight would not happen anytime soon. Uh, way too soon for that. I need to see a little bit more from Ennis Ortiz to properly judge that fight. I don't know who would win at this point. All great questions. All great questions. Okay, <clears throat> two more pages of questions. Whew. We're already almost an hour in, guys. Holy shit, I'm going to lose my voice. I'm going to be at my brother's memorial and I won't be able to speak. Okay, uh, Ivan uh, Ristoff. Ask a longtime listener from Bulgaria. That's awesome. So we've had questions from Germany, Bulgaria, Mexico. This is awesome. He has uh, Kubrat Pulev clearly indicates that he has no intentions of retiring. Who do you think he should face next? Uh, whoever he wants, honestly. I mean, coming off, he, he just fought the second best heavyweight in the world. He had a couple of moments in that fight. He's only lost to Joshua and Klitschko. There's absolutely no shame in that. Maybe do a homecoming fight in Bulgaria. Uh, I don't think he's quite at the point where he needs to be used as a gatekeeper for prospects. He's not there yet. He's still a contender. The one thing about Pulev is he hasn't fought a lot of the other contenders. I'd love to see Pulev fight the winner between the 
Povetkin White rematch. I'd like to see him fight Joseph Parker. I'd like to see him fight those types of heavyweights because I think those would be really fun, exciting fights. He's not at the gatekeeper level yet. He's still a few years away from that, I think. Let's see him fight some of these other top guys and make for some exciting heavyweight fights. He asked, uh, have I seen footage of Kubrat's brother, Tervel? Uh, yes, I have. But the thing with Tervel Pulev is he's 38 already. He's 38 years old. He's only had 15 pro fights. He does have a fight scheduled later this month. He went pro in 2016. He got Olympic bronze in 2012. He lost to Alexander Usyk in those Olympics, or else he probably would have won gold if he didn't have to fight Usyk. Uh, Usyk, of course, was probably the best fighter in those Olympics. But uh, he went pro in 2016. He's almost, what, a five-year pro? Very thin resume. So he is to step it up. He had no fights in 2020. So I just don't. I just can't take him seriously at this point. Fricky92 asks, Tiafima Lopez versus a young Manny Pacquiao at 135 who wins. Right now, I got to favor Pacquiao. I just, Pacquiao only had one fight at 135, but man, he was great there. There just weren't big fights for him at that time at 135, or else he would have stayed there longer. The fights at 40, 47 were bigger. That's why he kept moving up. But if there were fighters for him at 135 at that time, he would have stayed there longer. 35 may have been his best weight. Seriously. It really, really may have been his best weight. So I'd favor Pacquiao over Tiafima Lopez. Uh, Also, he says, um, he has a couple jokes. Do you think twins are ever aware that one of them was never planned? Oh, I guess not. Uh, That'd be a tough one. You'd have to ask twins. And then from the perspective of deaf people, do people that yawn look like they're screaming? Either screaming or having an orgasm. I don't know. I guess it just depends on how they, what face they make when they yawn. <laughs> David Cantero asks, uh, how does boxing fix the belt problem? Uh, does a promoter just have to stop working for them with them for something to happen? Then he goes on to say, promoters won't say anything because they could promote their fighters as champions. Well, you kind of answered your own question. There's the problem. There's 8,000 different belts, but it doesn't matter. If you have a fighter who has the WBA regular belt or the interim belt or the super belt, if you're a promoter, you're going to promote that fighter as a champion. If you're a network who broadcasts that fighter's fights, you're going to call them a champion too. It's, it, it helps you promote the fight to casual fans. It's going to take the fighters themselves turning down the belts before any of this changes. And I don't know about you guys, but I was an athlete in my youth. And I'll tell you right now, athletes love trophies. So it doesn't matter what damn belt it is. Most fighters are going to take the belt because those are trophies. And that's just the bottom line. He also asks, uh, if I was able to redo the boxing weight classes, would I and how would I do it? Great question, David. I was actually going to do a video on this. Let me know if you guys would be interested in that because with the new Bridger weight division, I looked at the science behind it and scratched my head. Um, would you like to see a video where I break down the body mass index differences between the, the, the divisions and they're inconsistent as you go up in weight and how I would realign things? Um, if so, I'll make that video. Okay, I'll do that. Maybe next week, the week after, I'll I'll do that video. And then he asks, uh, how has Matchroom messed up? Or he, he basically says, Matchroom Boxing has messed up Joseph Parker. 
He's had the weakest run of his career since he signed with Matchroom. Hey, man, he fought two high-profile fights when he first signed with Matchroom, and he made millions of dollars. Since then, he's kind of checked out mentally because he's got silk sheets now. He's enjoying kind of being a celebrity in his homeland. You saw all the, the fun viral videos he made last year. So I, I, that's a little bit more on Joseph Parker, in my opinion. He had those two fights against what uh, uh, Joshua and then I think White, where he made good money. Those were high-profile fights with him, and he's kind of good right now. So it's kind of up to him to tell Matchroom he wants another crack at the top guys and he wants big fights. Joe Blow asks, why are boxing mismatches – or oh, I'm sorry, why are boxing matches – Historically, why were they set at 15 rounds? And then before that, they were set at far more rounds and a less consistent number. They were all over the place. Uh, because there was very little regulation in boxing for a very long time. Guys, you, I'm sure you diehard fans, you've read about 50-round fights, 80-round fights, right? There, there was very little regulation. Sometimes people would fight until one person physically couldn't fight anymore. There had to be a knockout, basically, or almost near death before a fight stopped. Then it was determined 15 rounds was the championship fight limit. And then with the death of Dooku Kim, when he fought uh, Ray Boom Boom Mancini in the early 80s, that was on network TV, that convinced the WBC to come in. They determined that the late rounds is what was killing fighters. That has not been scientifically proven, by the way. And so they changed it to 12 rounds. And all the other sanctioning organizations jumped on that. Um, the real science, what's killing fighters, is dehydration, cutting weight, uh, prolonged beatings, all these sorts of things, right? So um, I could do a video on that itself. But that's what it was, man. And then he asked, uh, who was my favorite player for the Dodgers? And <clears throat> my favorite brand of whiskey. Off the top of my head, some of my favorites for the Dodgers. Clayton Kershaw, Mike Piazza might be my all-time favorite. Mike Piazza, my, my grandfather loved Mike Piazza, and he was one of my favorites too. Kirk Gibson, even though he only briefly played for the Dodgers because he was with the Detroit Tigers and he went over to the Dodgers. Oral Hershiser, Fernando Velazuela, uh, and then Roy Campanella. That goes way back to when it was in Brooklyn. And then um, as far as whiskey <clears throat> or bourbon, I like Basil Hayden. I like Booker's. Those are pretty good. Those are pretty damn good. All right. Uh, super chat pledge from Omar Rodriguez. Thank you so much, Omar. He asks, in your opinion, can boxer A out-jab boxer B and still have boxer B out-box box, boxer A? Uh, yeah, but I'd, I'd say that's rare. I'd say if one guy's winning the battle of the jab, pretty much he's winning that fight. But there are instances, there are certain fights where, and, and it is rare, but there are certain fights where one guy's landing more jabs, but the other fighter is landing more power punches, more body punches. He's also making the other fighter miss all his power punches. Um, and he's so dominant with his power punching his defense, his ring generalship, that it could slightly, slightly usurp the other fighter out jabbing him. But 99% of the time, I would say the fighter landing more jabs and doing the better work with his jab, I'll say 90% of the time is winning the fight. 
definitely winning the fight in, in terms of boxing. Um, but there are instances where that is not the case, in my opinion. Let's see. Uh, Edgar Valdez, will I get the COVID vaccine? I guess that's a political question now. Um, I, yeah, I guess so. I would consider it as long as the science makes sense. Um, I would like to take the antibody test just to see if I have the, the COVID antibody, because if I do, I don't think I need to take the COVID vaccine. However, I've heard things, um, and I don't know how much, I don't know what to believe anymore, but I've heard um, that you could get the COVID vaccine and still get COVID. This is a virus that could mutate and there could be different strands. I mean, people take the flu vaccine and they still get the flu. So I'm not pretending I know all the science and understand it. My th- my position on this is it's all kind of brand new. We're still learning. And I just want to hear what we learn. If we do have a vaccine, I think the first people that need to get it are vulnerable people. That is the elderly and people who have pre-existing health conditions. And I would wait personally so those folks could get it first because I'm a young, healthy person. Then I'll get it after them. It disgusts me that we're seeing celebrities and these politicians and all these people get the damn vaccine before elderly, poor people are getting it. That's fucked up, but doesn't surprise me. Justin S. asks, how long did I work as an unpaid writer? How long did it take for you to rise to the level of being able to do boxing stuff full time? What was your USMC MOS? Did you have any interesting tours or experiences? Man, I could do a whole video on your questions, man. Good stuff. Um, And I really could do a long video on the unpaid writer part because I think a lot of people don't understand the way the boxing media is set up and all media, basically all media these days. Um, Even most political media, a lot of it's unpaid, man. Um, Man, I I blogged kind of part-time in boxing and I would just post stuff here and there. Going back to the early 2000s, I didn't really start getting paid at all until the early 2010s. And I didn't get to a point where I was making pretty decent money until the late 2010s. It it was actually my wife in 2015 that convinced me to really kick it up a notch. And I'm in a position now where if I wanted to, I could probably live 100% off of boxing, but I would have to do a lot more work. I turned down work to do other things. I work in other arenas as well. Um, if I ever quit doing those other things and just do boxing full time, I'd have to sacrifice some things in my life. I'm just not ready to do that yet. So, um, but yeah, right now I'm in a pretty good spot, man, uh, with ring, but man, it took, I would say when I, when I got really serious with this, really, really serious, it took about five years, but I had blogged and you know, talked about boxing and chat rooms and stuff for like a decade before that. But it took years of hustling, driving to venues, covering fights, doing all this shit for free, basically for free. And then you get maybe like a stipend, you know, your gas gets covered or you get fed and then you work up from there. And I get guys, you know, DMing me all the time. Mike, how can I get paid in boxing? Mike, how can I start getting paid? I'm a writer. Well, my, my answer is forget, forget about being paid for a while. Just write. If you don't have a card that makes you very, very unique, a special thing that you can play to, you just got to get in line. And some people will skip in line. There's nepotism. There's guys I see out there getting work because of who their dad was or, or who 
what political rallies they go to, who they sleep with. You see all that kind of stuff out there that exists in all forms of media. But um, for most people, man, you just got to get in line and hustle and just write, write, write. And eventually you'll build up a profile. But your first hundred or so articles, you ain't getting paid. It's just the way this shit works. In USMC, I was a ground radio repairman. I don't even think that MOS exists anymore. I think they've combined a few MOSs, but I went to um, Marine Corps Electronic Communications School in uh, 29 Palms, and that's still there. That school's still there. So anything dealing with communications, electronics, you're going to go to that school if you have an MOS in that field. So um, there's a bunch of stories I could tell about my experiences in the Marines. I'll save that for a different video before I lose my voice. Uh, 30S30 asks, do you think Canelo would have taken a rematch against Triple G if it wasn't a draw where a glove can be today? Great question, and it's it's why that fight is uh, why I'm still pissed off about it. Um, had Golovkin gotten the decision over Canelo, I, there absolutely would have been a rematch, okay? Uh, because it still would have been the biggest fight for either guy. And it's very, very likely that Canelo would have fought the way he did in the, in, in the real rematch and won that, and then you'd have one and one and you get a rubber match. So it would have been better for boxing in terms of business and, and everything else if Golovkin had gotten the first uh, win. But then also he would have been in the power position for the rematch, and he would, he would have made more money. It would have forced Canelo to step up his game a little bit more, I think, overall. And it would have been a better victory for Canelo if he won the rematch uh, because, you know, he'd redeem himself and it would set up this great rubber match. It would have been great for boxing. So Adelaide Bird and Don Trella not only screwed over Golovkin, and, you know, that upsets me, but that's not really what angers me that much about the whole thing. They screwed over boxing history and boxing fans and the entire business of American boxing for several years because of it. That's what pisses me off. But um, where would Golovkin be today, he asked, if he had gotten that first win? If Golovkin, look, let's say he get he won that first fight, and then let's say Canelo got the decision in the rematch, and let's say they fought uh, for a third time and Canelo won that fight. Golovkin would be able to say he beat a guy that's going to be in the Hall of Fame one day. He'd have that credit on his resume. And he would have done that at 35. Canelo was 27. Remember that. And he, he loses the next two fights. He's 36. He's 37, 38. So what? It, it wouldn't hurt his legacy at all. He'd have that win over Canelo at his absolute best. Yeah, Floyd beat Canelo, but he wasn't at his absolute best. He was 23. This version of Canelo knocks out that version of Canelo in five or six rounds. Mark me. <laughs> he would. So that's how it changed things for Golovkin. And even the haters would have to put some respect on his name. Dino Ciccarelli asks, recently heard of your brother's passing. My condolences to you. Thank you for that. Uh, he says, if I may ask, was, his, uh, was it related to COVID or something else? It was not at all related to COVID. I'll put that much out there. Uh, Philippe asks, out of the sanctioned organizations in boxing, which do you respect the most and why? Which, in your opinion, is the worst? Well, they kind of all suck. <laughs> They're kind of all the worst. But overall, I'd say the best is the WBC because at least they have weight protocols. I like their weight management program. I think it could be better, but I do like it. And all the sanctioning organizations should adopt it. Uh, their pre-fight weight checks and all that I think are great. 
And then I like the clean boxing program. In theory, it's the right thing to do. It's grossly underfunded. They need to up the budget by millions of dollars. But I don't expect them to do that alone. The other sanctioned organizations need to jump in. The Association of Boxing Commissions should jump in and try to find a way for everyone to contribute to make it a program that um, that makes sense. As far as the worst, it's the WBA. They're the most historic. They go back to the NBA, the National Boxing Association. They go back historically the longest. So they have the most tradition. They've destroyed and tarnished their name with their ridiculousness. I have to say they're overall the worst. Uh, let's see. Jerry Pleasant asks, condol- or he says, um, condolences on your recent loss, Mike. Thank you. Uh, he says, now that time has passed, how would you spend 48 hours with your brother if you could pick any two days from the pre-pandemic past? Great question. There's just one day that sticks out recently. Um, Christmas 2017. That was, you know, about six months before Tiffany and I, my wife, moved here to Atlanta. And we were planning to move. We didn't know it'd be Atlanta quite yet. We, we you know, we had a couple, a few cities in mind. Atlanta, Chicago, Nashville, Dallas, Charlotte, a couple in mind that we were checking out. But uh, we were leaning toward, it it was between Atlanta and Dallas, I think, by then. But um, we couldn't get back east to, or I couldn't get back east to be with family for Christmas. Neither could my brother. And so he came up to, um, to my apartment in L.A. He was in Long Beach. And I think he came up Christmas Eve. We chilled. We went to the Grove. And it was dead. It was cool to go to the Grove and it was open. For those of you who don't know, the Grove is like this outdoor mall, uh, kind of near America Mile, Hollywood area, not far from Larchmont Village, all that stuff. And um, it was kind of empty, kind of dead. And we just hung out. We had a couple of drinks. There's like a bar there. Uh, we may have watched a movie. I can't even remember. But the next day, Christmas Day, my brother came back over and he uh, bought flowers for Tiffany. That blew her away. He brought a bottle of wine and, t- and flowers for her. And, man, we just we just chilled. We just hung out. We ate. My, Tiffany cooked a spread of food. We ate. Me and my brother, when Tiffany was cooking, we went up to the roof of my building. Um, you guys know I love rooftops. And we sat up there. There was a helicopter pad up there. We sat up there and just had beers and just talked. It was awesome. It was perfect weather, uh, amazing weather. And things were quiet, you know. And we spent all Christmas Day just talking, drinking some beers. We had some wine. And then we ate a ton of food and watched movies. It was so simple. But I remember Anthony telling me um, that that was the best Christmas he ever had. It was his favorite Christmas ever. And it was so simple and chill. There was no fighting. You know, most Christmases, the family's together and someone gets in an argument Someone spills some damn wine on the couch and then your mom's slapping you in the back of the head. Something, you know, none of that. It was just very, very chill. And it was a great memory. And I got to tell you, man, you, you know, on Facebook, how your memories come up. They're like two years ago today, blah, blah, blah. That memory came up, uh, you know, this Christmas. It said three years ago today. Um, and that was hard to see because Tiffany bought uh, onesies. And now it's become a tradition. We started it that Christmas where she bought a onesie for her, one for me, one for Anthony. We kind of took a picture, chilling by the Christmas tree, like old school hip-hop, B-boy stance, by the Christmas trees, and uh, posted that. And when I saw that memory on Facebook, I seen that was was tough, man. That was really, really tough. But that's I would go back to that day. 
It was an awesome day. John Uden with the Super Chat Pledge. Thank you so much, John. He says, uh, is there a form of martial arts that you wish had been done besides that, that I had done besides boxing? I started Muay Thai and it's been a big boost mentally and physically. You know, I don't, I don't talk about this a lot, but I did judo for a year, jujitsu for about a year. Uh, when I was in high school, I actually worked at Burger King and the night manager who sold crack out of the window. I'm not making this shit up. He sold drugs out of the drive through window. He also was an MMA fighter before MMA was even a thing. He did all that stuff. And he convinced me and my boy uh, to go with him to the gym. And he said, hey, man, just buy a gi and I'll teach you some shit. I ain't going to charge you nothing. You come over and we'll roll. You know, that's what he called it. We'll, We'll get on the floor. We'll roll a little bit. So I did that shit for like a year. I just didn't like it as much, man. Uh, I didn't like being on the ground like that. But I did learn some stuff. I learned some arm bars, um, sweeps, things like that, and some groundwork. I just wasn't – I'm tall and long. So, so, you know, jujitsu and and judo especially just doesn't work with my body type as much. But – you know, if, I guess if I could go back, I would I would do kickboxing too. I never did kickboxing. And I do have long legs, really freaking long legs. Even I got crazy long arms, but my legs are even crazy longer. I like I have a shorter, I'm like a spider. I have like a shorter torso and longer limbs. So I'm perfect for boxing, but I'm, I also would be perfect for kickboxing. So I wish I had done kickboxing too. Okay, let's see. Uh, Derek asks, um, he says, I upset a few people earlier this week on Twitter questioning Errol Spence's number five ranking by the Ring Magazine as pound for pound, our pound for pound top 10. I'm not hating. I just don't see wins over Danny, Mikey, and Porter as uh, pound for pound top five worthy. At the moment, I'd put Tio above him. Well, you're not the first person to say that, Derek. I think that we rank a lot of Spence's ranking is um, eye test. And the way he beat some of those guys you mentioned. Uh, I was impressed with the Brook win, too, because he went overseas and, and fought Brook. That's where he won his title. I might be the most impressed with that win, actually, of all his wins, to be honest with you. That's when he hit the pound for pound list. And we're like, oh, this kid's got some. But um, I don't know if I'd put Tio higher off of one win, right? I will say this. Tio Lopez has a better win on his resume than Errol Spence does. That cannot be refuted. I know there's people on the internet that would say, no, no, no. But that's true. I mean, beating Lomachenko is, it usurps anything Spence has done. But Spence is also has a better body of work at 147 right now. The overall body of work than Teofimo Lopez does at 135. That's going to change very, very rapidly. So I wouldn't put Teo above Spence just yet. But if you do, I'm not mad at that. Uh, if you don't think Spence is top five worthy, I'm not mad at that either. I, I don't for my for my money, I don't think Spence or Lopez right now deserves top five. They're in the top ten. But Tio, if he beats the Taylor Ramirez winner, he might be number one at that point. But a lot has to take place before that can happen. Okay. Uh Silvio Silcan asks. How brutal was the training in the Marine Corps compared to boxing training? Good question. And is there anything that you picked up back then that you still do today? Huh, good question. Um, 
the thing about Marine Corps training, I was 18, 18, 19 years old. So mentally, I wasn't as tough as I am now. I, I wasn't as uh, mature. So having people scream in your ear, and, and for me, the, actually the hardest part for me, the physical stuff wasn't that hard for me. It was the mental stuff, being away from my family. I had never been away from my family. I was very, very close with my family. So being away from them, being out of my neighborhood, all, that was the hardest part. It really, really was. Uh, mentally and emotionally, that was very difficult. It would be interesting now at 41, if I went into the Marines, how, it, how I'd fare, you know? Um, the main thing with the Marines is uh, very little sleep. I learned how to operate on very little sleep. You get up at five in the morning, you're running before you even eat breakfast. And then you're doing fire watch, you know, you're, you're watching over the barracks and everything. And you take turns and all that. But, but um, you learn to operate on very little sleep and very high stress. And that has served me very, very well in my life. Uh, I am kind of an insomniac. I don't sleep very good. I didn't. I slept horribly last night. I think I just have anxiety over my brother's Memorial Friday. I'm thinking about what I want to say and all that stuff. You know, stuff plays through your brain. So I wasn't sleeping last night. I'm kind of used to that. But um, the biggest thing I think that it instilled in me was running. I had played sports, basketball, football, whatever. And I remember, you know, basketball, we'd, we'd run like a mile. And then we'd practice. I'd be like, oh, man, I got to run a mile. Oh, shit. You do like four laps around the track. And then we do practice. And I'd be like, man, this, is, this sucks. I got to run a mile. Man, in the Marines, we ran miles and miles before breakfast. You know what I'm saying? And you, you'd you run with uh, gear, all your boots on, everything on, with your rifle. <clears throat> you'd run through sand. I was stationed in the desert. And you'd run through sand in your boots. It might be 30 degrees. It might be 100 degrees. Your ass is running. It might be raining. It might be sunny as hell with the sun beating on you. I had never experienced that because playing sports in, in high school, you know, it was tough, but nothing like that. So getting through the elements, that training helped me in boxing. It really, really did because um, there, there's days like I trained Tuesday. Man, I just didn't want to go. I'm actually going to the boxing gym tomorrow. I'm going to get in a workout before I uh, go travel to my brother's thing. Uh, last week, I sparred a dude. I sparred a kickboxer who has a fight coming up January 30th. So that dude's in shape. Holy shit. God damn, was that dude strong. But um, And I, I, I wasn't planning to spar for another month or so, but I just did three rounds. But anyway, that going through all that in the Marine Corps helped prepare me for what I would face in different situations in my life. So absolutely, it was beneficial. And, and um, I took a lot of that with me. And so um, also, I was used to coaches screaming in my face already. So the drill instructors, they, it didn't bother me much. Um, so that wasn't really a big deal. Yeah, I guess it was just working through the elements and working hungry. Sometimes you go a day or two, you know, depending on what kind of training you were doing. Like we did this thing called a crucible where you're not eating for a couple of days. Um, I wasn't used to that. You know, I, I would always be willing to you know, be able to get something, even if when I was a kid, I stole it. I, I would steal food sometimes or whatever to eat. Couldn't do that in Marines. So, you know, if you're fasting and stuff, it's taught me how to get through all of that. 
Uh, also, let's see. He asked, um, also maybe as an homage to your late brother, Anthony, tell us about another one of your shenanigans where you two pulled when you were kids. Uh, <laughs> cheers from Romania. Wow, dude. So we have questions from all over the world on this chat. That's so great. All right. I'll tell you guys about something here. I got a million things I could tell you, me and my brother, all the dumb shit we did. But I was working an office job. This is before I moved to L.A. This was back east. And uh, my brother was at Rite Aid. I don't even know if they still have these, but like at Rite Aid and Walgreens and stuff, they used to have a photo lab. And I think now, since everything's digital, it probably don't even exist. But people would bring in film, and you'd have to develop it. And while he was going through college, he was that dude. He was the photo dude, right? So uh, he would just call me on my lunch break, or I actually I would on my lunch break go into a conference room. I worked in an office, and I go in a conference room, lock the door like I had a meeting, and I'd call my brother at his job, and we'd three way, and we just prank call people, just fuck with people. And the district photo manager for all of his stores at, it wasn't called Rite Aid. It was some, some other chain that got bought by Rite Aid at the time was this guy named Ralph. And we call and just fuck with Ralph. And, um, Anthony told me the, the machine he worked on was called the V 50. And he'd tell me what to say. And I'd call Ralph and I'd be like, hey, this is, this is Bob over at store 220. The V50's fucked, man. Uh, and, and he'd say, well, what, are the, what are the numbers? Did you do a diagnostics? I'd be like, yeah, you know, we got 14 red, 14 Z. I'd read all this shit. The guy would be like, oh, my God. Oh, we'll send somebody right over there. You know, just do shit like that. And then there was this kid that worked at his job named uh, God damn, uh, Ch- uh, Chad. <laughs> yeah, Chad. Uh, who I, Chad, I think Chad might have been a little slow. I think he might, he was just a little different, but one time I'm there chilling with my brother at the photo lab and we look over and Chad was working up front and this dude walked in with a sack, like Santa, like a sack. And he jumped over the counter and pushed Ralph and took the cigarettes and just went like this into the sack. And Ralph was freaked out. And Ralph was just like, oh, excuse me, sir, you can't do that. You know, he was kind of freaking out. And this dude filled up his – and me and my brother are just laughing her ass off. And this dude just jumps over the counter and runs out. And that kind of gave us an idea. We're like, shit, man, maybe we could do this. So um, I can't give too much details on this or I'll get arrested. But uh, we came in one night when Chad was working and took that place to the cleaners. <laughs> That's all I'm going to say because we knew Chad wasn't going to do shit. Um, and we also used to prank call Chad a lot. <laughs> I, I – I called Chad once. Anthony's listening to me pranking Chad at the front desk from the photo lab. So he's watching Chad freak out, right, on the phone, hearing me seeing Chad. And I called Chad, and I just told him I I made up this character. And I said, man, I know you stole my truck, motherfucker. And I was just telling him, man, you stole my truck, Chad. I know you got my truck, motherfucker. And I was just I, – I, I convinced him that he stole my truck. And he didn't even know who I was. And he – you know, he hangs up the phone and shit, and he goes to my brother and goes, I don't recall stealing someone's truck. Maybe I should call the police. He called his dad. They all freaked out. Yeah, we would just do shit like that. All right, I need to stop before I get in trouble. Okay. Tawal1999 asks, do you think there is a chance one day that boxing will have one champion in each weight class or the sanctioning bodies will disappear and become irrelevant? 
No. And on that, I'll say it's 100%. I hate to say that, but no. Uh, Charles Oldhouse says, personally, if you had to guess, do you think Canelo, Mayweather, and or Pacquiao have been on the juice at some point in their boxing careers? If so, what period of their careers? Cheers, Mike. Charles, there's only so much I can say on the record, brother. I mean, I still I work in this business. There's only so much I can say. Um, I'll just say this, okay? There are certain fighters that I would bet my life on that they are 100% clean and nothing ever happened. Gennady Golovkin is one of those guys. Um, Terrence Crawford is one of those guys. Um, and there, there are several I could point to. Uh, Nonito Donaire, of course, um, that I know I, I, I would bet my life savings that they never did anything wrong. But until we get full 365 day a year drug testing, which is the, the only guy to ever volunteer for that year after year after year was Nonito Donaire. Canelo did it for one year, but that was part of a punishment. So I can't give him too much credit. But I don't blame any of you guys for being suspicious of anybody. I'll just put it that way. Johnny's Fight Palace, my man Johnny. He says, all right, Mike, buddy, I'll give you a good one. If you could pick three mob guys uh, for them to do a movie about, who would it be a good movie, not some B-level trash? There is a lot of B-level trash mob movies. Holy shit. Okay. Santo Traficante Jr., uh, he's not as popular as, you know, the media, particularly back in the day, the media used to be headquartered in New York, right? Now it's in Los Angeles. They've taken over New York. So the New York mobsters got all the press. I want to see movies about these guys in other markets. Santo Traficante Jr., one of the most underrated mobsters ever. This dude never did a night in prison in the United States. He did time in prison in Cuba in Latin America, but never in the United States. So I think that I'd love to see a movie about him. He also had, uh, I'm not going to say too much here, he had a little something to do with the assassination of a certain president. It wasn't just him, but he was definitely a part of that uh, because the mafia helped get Kennedy elected. Literally, they are the reason he got elected president. And then Kennedy, like a moron, starts going after them. What do you think was going to happen? But also, man, how about Joseph Zarelli and Guglielmo Tocco? These are the two guys that combined the East and West Side Detroit families and created what we call the Detroit Partnership. The Detroit family is quietly the most successful mob family today. It has been running without – there were some indictments in the 90s and stuff. Some dudes did, did some jail time, but Jack Tocco – who's another guy they should make a movie about. Longest-running mafia boss in, I think, American history. So the Detroit family stays under the radar. And they're not as big and powerful as some of these other families, Lucchese, you know, all these guys. I understand that. But extremely successful. And they've got uh, tentacles in some other markets. Detroit had a piece. Of, you guys know about Hoffa and all that kind of stuff. Uh, so that tied to to the East Coast. But they also had uh, their tentacles in Vegas. Uh I know one dude from from the partnership that's in San Diego right now. So so they still got some things going. I'd love to see movies about those guys. Uh, Shafia Ahmed asks, uh, thoughts on Billy Joe Sanders versus Andre, their Twitter war. Do you th- Who wins that fight at super middleweight? I tend to favor Andre in that matchup. 
I tend to favor Andre. Uh, do they have enough time for a full camp seven weeks out to the end of February? I just don't think those guys are fighting anytime soon. I just don't believe it. I, you know, I hope I'm proven wrong. I really, really hope I'm proven wrong. I don't see it happening. And lastly, does Andre need to vacate his middleweight belt in order to fight for a title at super middleweight? No. If that fight happens and they decide to do it at super middleweight for Billy Joe Saunders' title, Andre can still keep his middleweight title. He would just have a year, I think, to fulfill his mandatory obligation. But he could go up and then come back down. Same situation with Golovkin. Should he want to fight Canelo for a third time this year at 168 or some kind of catchweight? Jay Perez says, best boxing movie ever? I'm going to go Rocky. I get this this question a lot. And there's some movies I love, man. Like Cinderella Man is still really great. Uh, anytime that's on, I, I check it out. There's some just wonderful boxing movies. But to me, Rocky, what I love about Rocky is, is the fight scenes. I mean, come on. They're not believable, right? But the story is believable in, the, in and of itself. Rocky loses the fight. It's not about winning the fight. It's about finishing the damn fight. That's a metaphor for life, brother. So I love that. And um, I like that Stallone wrote it, even though he may have took it from a certain person's life story, you know, out of a few things. But uh, I love that he he did it himself. And he demanded, if you're going to buy this movie, I gotta, I'm going to be the guy. I'm going to be in it. Because they wanted to cast like James Caan or some shit. Could you imagine Rocky with James Caan? Get the fuck out of here. So I think it was James Caan. I'm going to go Rocky. All right. Last Uchiha asks, is Canelo a great fighter? And he capitalizes great. And if not, who is in the current era besides Manny Pacquiao? Uh, Yes, I'm going to say Canelo's a great fighter. All-time great? No, he's not on that level yet. But I would classify him as an elite, pound-for-pound, great fighter. He has become that. He wasn't that five years ago. He wasn't. But over the last two or three years, he has turned into that guy. He truly has. And, of course, Pacquiao is beyond great. He's a legend. He's pound for pound. Well, not anymore, but he um, is a guy that all-time great pound for pound is in that discussion, right? Some of the, one of the best fighters ever. So uh, that's a totally different level. And then uh, he goes, what are your three loves? He says, mine are boxing, anime, and basketball. Okay. I'll try to be politically correct here. Boxing, food and drink, I'm going to consider one thing. And number three, I won't say the word. It starts with a P. I'm just going to say women. Um, It might make some of you uncomfortable. Look, before I was married, I was a complete fucking man whore. And I'll own that. My wife knows it. We've talked about it. We know each other's dirt. We're good. But I traveled the world more than a few times without ever leaving the United States, if you know what I mean. Um, so I got plenty of stories with uh, ex- my experiences with females. I could write a book on that shit. And especially when I went to L.A., I was an alpha male, um, big guy in, in a land of, don't get a f- I love L.A., and there's plenty of real dudes in L.A., but in the entertainment space in L.A., it's a bunch of beta males. These are little effeminate kind of guys. So when I'd be in classes and workshops and stuff like that with, with you know, mostly females, if I'd, uh, cause I dabble in acting and stuff. 
and um, public speaking classes and things like that. But even like I went to L.A. City College and got an associate's degree in uh, database development to do some of the the uh, day job stuff that I do to bring in some extra cash. I lived in Koreatown. Um, just living where I did at the time, man, it, it was it was a very good time. I'll just put it at that. A very good time. Ah, memories. Okay. Uh, Couster asks, bro, have you watched Demented World, the documentary talking about Anthony Cumia's career? Yes. Yes, I have. The dude who made that hates Anthony Cumia, who I think is really misunderstood. Now, he has said some shit that was over the line. I definitely wouldn't have went there. But Cumia, at his best, is the funniest dude on earth. Seriously. And Opie and Anthony, at, at its best, was the best radio show ever. It blows Howard Stern away. Sorry, Howard people. I know you guys get offended. But at its best, Opie and Anthony smoked the shit out of Howard Stern. That show is awesome. He says, uh, the documentary about Lady Die is called uh, Down the Bottleneck. I've seen that too. Pretty sad what happened to Lady Die. But yeah, dude, Opie and Anthony, man, I miss that show so damn much. Holy shit. Anthony Kumi is just not the same without the guys, man. And that show at its best, when you bring Patrice O'Neill in there, Rich Vaughn. Oh, there it is in the chat. Justin, RIP, Patrice O'Neill. Dude, I've been listening to Patrice uh, the last month, since my brother died. My brother was a massive Patrice O'Neill fan. And just listening to Patrice has uh, helped helped me get through. The, I, I kind of figured out this week that, I, you know, I guess I admitted to myself, I've been depressed. I, I've just been down and depressed. I have not been myself. And I've been listening to a lot of Patrice to help get through that shit. Uh, Patrice's clips, especially when you fight with Anthony Cumia, and by the way, they were friends in person. Anthony would have them over for barbecues and shit. But um, those were awesome clips. You guys should go on YouTube and look up Patrice O'Neill, Opie, and Anthony. And if you get <laughs> – Google this one, okay? <laughs> Google this one. Uh, Opie and Anthony, Bobo, B-O-B-O, Patrice O'Neill, up and down game. Thank me later. Patrice O'Neill and Bobo on the Opie and Anthony show playing the up and down game. You will thank me later. You have to be a sick fuck to enjoy that stuff, though. Uh, John Gary Navita asks, my question is whenever I think of a fighter who has a great resume in terms of quality of opposition like Emmanuel Augustus Burton, who would you consider to be a fighter in the same boat as him? A guy who fought a lot of quality fight fighters but could never get to the top. First thing that jumps to mind, brother, Darnell Boone. I've met Darnell. I actually met him for the first time at Big Bear. He was working with Gennady Golovkin. Super awesome guy, wonderful human being, and he is a dude that fought everybody. I mean everybody. I actually wrote down a few of these. By the way, his record right now is 24-5-5. You look at that record, you're like, oh, man, this guy's trash. All right. He fought Andre Ward, dropped him. Fought Jean Pascal, Curtis Stevens. These are undefeated versions of these fighters, by the way. Undefeated Brian Vera, Irislandi Lara, undefeated uh, Edwin Rodriguez, Adana Stevenson twice, beat him, Sergey Kovalev twice, undefeated Willie Monroe. And I can keep going, okay? Who else in boxing has a resume like that? Who gives a shit if he lost those fights? 
Dude fought everybody. And again, I could keep going with the names. So there's an example for you. And on any given night, you could drop War, you could drop Stevenson. You had to take that dude seriously. Even Sergey Kovalev has said in interviews, Darnell Boone, that dude is tough. Mr. Wawa asks, should the weight classes be remade? Again, if you guys would like to see that video, I will do it. And I'll give you my opinions on that, of what I would do if I could. Rockstar 1996, does the universe despise Artur Viterbiev, or is it just cosmic punishment for the sins of a past life? LOL, not see the guy in boxing with shittier luck. Yeah, man, that dude has had some hard luck. He is just a hard luck fighter. Um, and you see that sometimes, man. Um, Matt Vekorobov is another guy that comes to mind um, that just, just had bad luck. Who's the dude that um, uh, God, uh, Charles Martin fought in um, Glassoff? Vashasov Glasskov, that was his name, who just tore out his, I think it was his knee, whatever. He was going to beat Martin and win a title. Just tore out his knee or something. Something went. I don't know if it was a knee, ankle, um, ACL, something like that. And um, I don't think he's fought since. So it's just, man, some guys are just unlucky, bro. Just unlucky. But Artur Baturbiev, yeah, I just wonder if, you know, all these delays and everything, if it's going to catch up to him. And if he fights a guy like Joe Smith, if he could lose that fight, you know, I still favor him to beat Joe Smith if and when they fight. But you just never know when that's going to catch up to him. Timmy Turner asks, Garcia versus Tank, who wins? You know, a lot of people think that if – Tank moved up to 135 and fought Ryan Garcia right now that Tank is just going to mop the floor with that kid. I'm not so sure about that, guys. Ryan Garcia is taller, longer, more athletic, and more explosive and more powerful than anybody Tank has fought. Anybody. Now, you could say some of the same things about Tank in relation to who Garcia's fought. But Tank's going to have to punch up at Garcia. And if Garcia can learn to move his head just a little bit and faint a little bit and move his feet better in between now and when him and Tank eventually fight, it keeps him at the end of that jab and walks him into an uppercut. When you're fighting a short dude, let him come at you. Time him, move him in, just move him into an uppercut. That's all you got to do. Easier said than done, of course. But as long as you can move your feet backward and pivot, And then there's also pivot, get your man to turn with you, step back and shift. It's not just pivoting to the side and moving out. It's pivoting, step back, shift to move him two ways. So when you pivot, he moves this way, step back, shift, move him this way, pow. Uh, If Ryan could start working on that kind of stuff, I don't know, man. He might beat Tank Davis. Right now, if they fought right now, I'm going to favor Tank. But a year from now, I don't know, man. Andrew Smith, what does Loma have to do for the rest of his career to be considered an all-time great? He's got to win titles again. He is in the downside of his career. He is not uh, the top guy that he once was. That's clear now. Took a bad loss to Tiafima Lopez. It was competitive, but the first six rounds of that fight, he did not look good. I've gone back and watched it a couple times. I would move down to 130. I would fight some of these young guns. Let's say he did move down to 130, and he fought a guy like Burchelt, Herring, um, Stevenson, and he won some of those fights. Um, 
maybe if he stays at 35 and he, he you know, beats one of the young guns there, he's got to win titles again. And he's got to kind of go on another run, whether it's at 130, 135, once Tio leaves. I don't know. But he's just short of all – I can't really put him in an all-time great level right now. He's a first ballot Hall of Famer. If he retires tomorrow, he's in the Hall of Fame. But all-time great, he's got to go on another title run, man, to be in that discussion. And let's see. Last but not least, this is the last question. Oh, my God. We made it. See what I do for you guys? Come on. Andy Reid, I'm sure this is a real Andy Reid, he asked, best pound-for-pound fighter of the last 50 years. So if we're going from 2020 back, that's going back to 1970. Uh, of the last 50 years. I'm going to go Sugar Ray Leonard, man. I don't know how you can... Who was more accomplished than him? He didn't have many... He only had like 40 fights. I think he was 36-3-1, but he's got wins over Benitez, Duran, Hearns, Hagler. And don't forget, he was 145-5 as an amateur. 1976 gold medal in Montreal. So over 100, almost 150 amateur wins. Uh, when the American amateur system was great, he was the leader. He was the class of that 76 team. Again, when the Americans were the best Olympic or the best amateur team out there, wins gold in 76. And then all those fighters I listed, it's not just that he beat all those Hall of Famers. He beat all-time greats. And I think the Hagler win, some people don't like it. Even if you think he lost to, to her uh, or lost to Hagler, or it was a draw. The fact that he moved up to middleweight and fought him, and it, again, people say, oh, Hagler was so old. Hagler was 32. Ray was 30. They, there wasn't much of an age difference. It, again, I'll go back to Golovkin-Canelo, where there was like a seven, eight-year difference. It's a two-year difference between those guys. So all that being said, I think it's Sugar Ray Leonard, man. That's my top pound-for-pound fighter of the last 50 years. Okay, guys. Fleeter in the chat says, I am offended, Mike. I love it. <laughs> uh, you know, dang, I missed some super chats. Uh, super chat pledge from J&M. Thank you so much. He says, howdy, Mike. I've always been curious about Tiffany's profession. What kind of work does your wife do? Thanks, buddy. Good question, man. Good question. Um, she is an IT project manager. So she, yeah, she works for a bank back in L.A., and they let her work remote. So she still works. She has to fly to L.A. a lot. Uh, there was a merger with a company in Canada, so she goes to Toronto a lot. She had to go to Miami last year. She has to travel sometimes for work because of these mergers and stuff. But she is an IT project manager. So she's a nerd, but a very cute, sexy nerd. And I love her. Um, so let's see. Just in the chat said, R.I.P. Patrice O'Neill, as I said before. He also says, Jim Norton looks like whatever container you pour him into. Dude, that is one of – Patrice had some great one-liners. I remember when he said Bobo uh, because he talked – he asked Bobo what his last name was. And he goes, isn't it funny how people like Bobo have the exact last name they should? Because it was like Daniel Bobo Curland. Uh, He had great lines, man. I love Patrice. Um 12, 1999, the chat says Gabe Rosado comes to mind too, talking about dudes who fought everybody. Good shout. Gabe Rosado is another one of those guys. Um, yeah. All right, guys. Man, this almost two hours I've been talking straight. I got to get a co-host. I need to get a damn – who would you guys – who would be a good co-host to bring on here with me 
via Zoom or something to help out with some of these because I'm losing my damn voice every week. Anyway, guys, um, keep me in your thoughts. Please keep my family in your thoughts. Uh, Friday is my brother's memorial. That's going to be this weekend's going to be tough, but um, I, I am looking forward to it. Seeing some friends and families, including some people I haven't seen in years, so that will be nice. And just reminiscing and talking about my brother. Um, and then um, we probably won't do TNC Monday, but we'll do something else. We'll do something else fun next week on the channel. And I'll probably do TNC the week after that. All right, guys. So have a good night. Uh, thank you for listening. And I will see you at the fights.